This podcast is brought to you by Safe Ireland and Airbnb, working in partnership to support domestic violence survivors across Ireland. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I'm still uh, sneezing and spluttering here. I don't have COVID, though, I don't think. Uh, But the good thing is that you can't catch anything through the medium of a podcast. So we'll plough on and introduce today's episode. Coming up shortly, we have the hugely talented actor, writer and sometimes circus performer Ivana Lynch. The 30-year-old Harry Potter star spoke to us about her first book, a memoir, which is a fascinating, moving and illuminating exploration of the eating disorder, which started when she was just 11 years old. It it did armour me. It protected me against everything because, you know, if you had a disappointment, if I failed a test at school, if a boy was mean to me, it, it, it was just like... I can just go home and I can just, uh, you know, set my, my target weight lower. I can eat less food. And it kind of, it starts to give you this high, this buzz that I'm in control and nobody can hurt me because I have this thing that, uh, soothes me. And it, it, I, I don't really understand why it's so soothing to, you know, to feel like, your weight is dropping, but maybe it's a control thing. But before we hear more from Ivana Lynch, I wanted to let you know about a vigil that is happening today, Thursday 28th of October, on the ninth anniversary of the death of Savita Halapanavar. And as you know, Savita died aged 31 on October 28th, 2012 at Galway University Hospital one week after she presented with back pain and was found to be miscarrying. 17 weeks into a pregnancy. Although the pregnancy was not viable, her requests for termination were refused because there was a fetal heartbeat and we still had the Eighth Amendment very much there at that stage. Savita then contracted sepsis and died of multi-organ failure and septic shock. As campaigner Alva Smith tweeted this week, we carry the memory of Savita in our hearts. On the ninth anniversary of her tragic death, we say never again. So a quiet vigil will be held outside the Dole, Kildare Street, today uh, from 5.30 to 6.15pm. And the organisers are also using this as an opportunity to continue the campaign to make the National Maternity Hospital free from any religious influence. The Make Our National Maternity Hospital public campaign said on Sunday that the latest proposed deal uh, would not settle rows on governance and that they're merely a smoke and mirrors exercise to deflect from legitimate concerns around ownership and the intransigence of an organisation determined to hold on to a valuable asset. Alva Smith continued extending the length of a lease over the site, which the St Vincent's Healthcare Group insists it must own for clinical governance and operational reasons does nothing to instill confidence regarding the independence of the new hospital. If ownership of the site is necessary for governance, the state must own it. And that's what the group uh, said. And the organisers include, as I said, Alva Smith and theatre nurse and trade unionist Joe Tully. Uh, So there's an opportunity today at 5.30pm outside the Dáil in Dublin to remember Savita and to amplify that message that the new maternity hospital uh, must be fully independent. So if you're interested in that and feel moved to go, that's what's happening. Uh, Also earlier this week, a young woman 
called Zoe O'Callaghan showed a photo of herself on Twitter with a bruise on her arm and it looked like there was a tiny hole from an injection in the centre of the bruise and she wrote quick heads up to anyone going out in town over the next while I was spiked last night and have tasted positive for multiple drugs in my system we drank all our drinks at the bar to be safe but I woke with this dirty bruise just be careful out there and That tweet comes as uh, in Britain, demonstrators took to the streets across the UK to protest against what they are calling a spiking epidemic. And there have been protests and nightclub boycotts in more than 40 areas as police there disclosed 254 reports of spiking in just two months. And there was a demonstration in Manchester in front of at least a thousand young people. Uh, Lucy Nichols, who is 21, declared it an emergency response to an emergency situation. Uh, Less than a fortnight ago, there was a nightclub boycott prompted by a spate of spiking cases, some allegedly involving needles. And it's now becoming, according to the Guardian report, something much bigger, a call to arms from a generation of young women fed up of feeling afraid. Uh, Several nightclubs in Manchester and across the UK closed on Wednesday night in solidarity with the protesters. Some of them have already implemented anti-spiking measures demanded by the protesters, such as cup covers and straws and trained members of staff in safeguarding. So that's all quite worrying and something to keep very much an eye on as the nightclubs are open again here. And if you have any insights into that, please do get in touch with us because it's a story that we would like to cover soon on the podcast. Now, today's guest is actor, writer and performer Ivana Lynch, who has written a beautiful new book called The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting. Many of you will know the County Louth woman as Luna Lovegood from the Harry Potter film franchise, but she's also been viewed for a long time as a role model for people recovering from anorexia. The memoir is a wonderfully written exploration of that, the complexities and contradictions within herself. And it also reveals how she overcame a very, very serious eating disorder to conquer the self-hatred and negativity in her and her fear, as the book describes, of leaving the neatness and safety of girlhood for the unpredictable journey of becoming a woman all done while in the spotlight of international fame. Ivana's is a story, as the book blurb puts it, of the tragedy and glory of growing up. And it really is a wonderful read. I began by asking her to tell me about the title of her book, The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting. Yeah, of course. Um, and thank you for having me on, Roisin. Yeah, so the title, well, it's, it's a metaphor, really. Um, I was looking for something kind of poetic and uh, I've always been quite fascinated by butterflies. I tend to just have pictures of them everywhere I go. And, um, you know, fascinated by their beauty and their delicacy and all that. And uh, for a long time, I would collect these books with butterflies in them. I was I, I'd just look at them. It was just something I did for, I don't know, I guess a type of meditation. And um, it was only while I was writing this book that I started to see a lot of um, similarities between, well, or like to see butterflies as, as symbols for uh, like recovery, I think. I mean, for how they, their transformational capacity, but also um, I started to see the pins going through the butterflies in all these beautiful spreads and and to 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 me what what was beautiful suddenly became very sinister that um in order to preserve their perfect little bodies somebody had killed them you know and uh to me that it's 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 a similar sort of sacrifice you make with an eating disorder that uh, to 
keep your body frozen in time to kind of stay in one place, you will sacrifice your life force, your creative energy, um, your potential really. That That's how I see it. And it's a comment on that, that I, I don't think it's worth that cost, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's a great title and it's it's so intriguing and it's it's in your afterward that you finally describe that and it, it makes so much mm. perfect perfect sense. Let's go back a bit because I was uh, thinking actually before before you came on that uh, the last time we spoke was on my other podcast called Roisin Meets and your mum Marguerite joined us that time. I don't know if you remember. Oh, right. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It was really nice. I just remember her being very shy and like very kind of like what am I doing in the studio but she's just a lovely woman and she gave us at that time a gorgeous insight into your childhood and you as a child this this imagine this full of imagination and creating your own imaginary worlds and so how creative you were um so I want to go back to that and and just to tell me about yourself as a little girl I suppose growing up in Louth um and your parents are teachers and quite an ordinary sort of background I suppose yeah, definitely. Um, all, all teachers and most of my siblings have tried their hand at teaching at some point or are teachers. It was just a very bookish household. Um, I think we're all quite introverts, all quite cerebral people. And uh, so, yeah, it was strange for me then to be like, I think I'd like to go into performance. You know, it just wasn't natural and it wasn't really encouraged. The, the arts were definitely encouraged, like our imaginations and stories and books were prioritized every day. Um, and, and yeah, like our, our parents kind of gave us every opportunity they could. I went to drama classes, dance classes, all that kind of thing. Um, and I would also say animals were a huge part of our life because we lived in deep in the countryside and, you know, there wasn't public transport. There weren't loads of other children around. So we, we had to sort of create a menagerie <laughs> around us to keep us occupied. And, uh, like every year we'd ask our parents, can we get a rabbit? Can we get a new thing? And they, it sort of built up. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I remember childhood. It was, it was very full. It was very creative. Um, but, but we, my family are quite shy, introverted people. And, um, yeah, there was also, I think, the, the shadow of the, the dark side of Catholicism. I, I, I see it. You know, there was a lot of sense of shame and, and guilt. And, um, that, that, I think that affected me a bit. I think it affects everyone. But, you know, this, this sense of, oh, don't have too much pleasure. Don't have too much fun. And, um, yeah. So, I don't yeah it's kind of explored in the book a bit more yeah no it is and so let's talk about you then at age 11 because that's when your eating disorder that you referred to earlier um started and I think what's happened to your narrative or what people have tried to put on your story over the years from you being in Harry Potter is like you had an eating disorder then you got this part in Harry Potter and it was fixed and and it's Mm -hmm. such I suppose in a way dangerous and just very Mm. very much in a benign way very narrow sort of um description and inaccurate I suppose from reading your very uh your book which is quite big and lengthy and (laughs) explores the issue in such great detail that I think anyone listening who is any way touched by this subject it's, it's essential reading I would say because it's wonderful to hear from such an articulate voice who's been through it so I know it's not that neat story but perhaps you can give us a bit of an insight into where where you remember it beginning and as you've said very well in the book that you didn't have any major trauma everyone thinks mm. that it has to be associated mm. with that but you didn't have that so take us back to 11 year old Ivana and what was going on for her yeah um 
as you explained there, there was no major event. And that's, you know, if people are looking for that for an easy answer. And it's like, sometimes people just have these issues and you, you can't really explain it. Um, I, I see it, it was like, that was the age when I started to question, why am I here? Like, what is my life worth? What am I going to do to take up space in the world, you know, to justify it, this sense that you, that you, you had to prove that you were worthy. Um, and I think, yeah, that's the age at which it was like, oh, you know, I'm going to have to find somebody who loves me as much as my mom does. And, and I don't think there is that, that absolute terror and fear. I was very attached, very close to my mom and I still am. And, uh, yeah, just this sense that you have to find work and you have to, prove yourself to people and and it's there's never going to be anything as unconditional as a parent's love and that just started to really freak me out I suppose like not that I was aware of it but just um asking these questions and and constantly meeting people who were something you know they had whether it was beauty or they had an incredible talent or they were very smart you know my sisters were very smart gifted they did the whole straight a thing so i think i you know it was partly that that search was um maybe expedited by the fact of being the third girl of of like well what am i going to do in this world that's going to be interesting and then it was just I just found this thing. I think people find different things, don't they? They, some people, and it can be less, um, uh, like sinister, I suppose, or less malign. It can be something like they find addiction to success, to succeeding or to another person. But I just found this addiction to controlling my body. And I think there were little things before, like way back that actually I didn't really put in the book. But when I was maybe six or seven, I had all these crazy allergic reactions and I had to go on this quite extreme diet where it was like no refined bread or you know no refined sugars anything and I, I I sometimes I think maybe unconsciously in my mind I very young me thought oh I get attention for this I'm made special for this and I get people notice me and so I think that's what started to happen when I was 11 I had this feeling of spaciousness this lack this feeling of I don't know who I am and then I started to fill it with I can get smaller and smaller and I can control my body and then people notice me. And the convenient thing about eating disorders is that it distracts you so much from the deeper pain, from the deeper questions. Um, it, it really numbs you. And every single day you kind of just have one goal and that's all you think about. At one point in the book, because as I said, I think you're so articulate on it, articulate on it. Um, you say you describe it as an armor, as something that protected you, which it's kind of ironic in that, as you say yourself, you know, it's something that can kill you, potentially kill your life force mm -hmm. is actually feels to the person who has it as something that's protecting them. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Because I think that might be hard for anyone who, who isn't who hasn't had any kind of um issue like that to understand. Yeah, it, it, it does sort of, to me, it makes you invulnerable. And that's, you know, I do talk later in the book about the grief of letting the eating disorder go. And I would still feel that, not grief, I'm way past that, but that feeling of, wow, I miss that safety. I miss how it, it did armor me. It protected me against everything because, you know, if you had a disappointment, if I failed a test at school, if a boy was mean to me, it, it, it was just like, I can just go home and I can just, uh, you know, set my, my, 
target weight lower or I can eat less food. And it kind of, it starts to give you this high, this buzz that I'm in control and nobody can hurt me because I have this thing that uh, soothes me. And it, it I, I don't really understand why it's so soothing to, you know, to feel like your weight is dropping, but maybe it's it, it, a control thing. Um, and yeah, it, and as I say, like, you're so hungry, you're so tired, you're so drained that you just don't have the, you don't care about anything else. You don't feel um, huge disappointment, huge love because there's just this. So it really numbs and protects you. And um, yeah, it, it, it makes you invulnerable to, to any kind of hurt. Yeah, but it also makes you very cold. There's an amazing scene uh, where you're sitting, you, you took at one point um, to sitting by the fire because it was the only way you could kind of keep warm because obviously you were um, depriving yourself so much that your body was, was not able to give the yeah. warmth. And uh, it really stood out to me. Your your siblings were teasing you about, we were, I think you were watching Lord of the Rings and, and they were teasing you because they said you looked the same as Gollum. And that idea actually was a great source of joy to you. You didn't find that offensive. I just found that fascinating. I mean, that's obviously, it was a big moment. Yeah, um, I know. I do think about that a lot because, yeah, you know, people, they, I kind of put that in there to show, yeah, how people with anorexia think that saying these things, it actually just strengthens your identification within this. And it's like the longer it goes on, the more you succumb to it, the more the eating disorder takes over. And you do see people who are like at their, you know, the the, the end of their journey where they're so wasted and they, it, it is like this thing has taken them over. Um, so, and, and yeah, it, it's egoic. It's like this complete egoic obsession with uh, control, weight, all that stuff. Um, and I put that in there to show like saying things like, you look shocking, you look scary, you look like Gollum is not helpful because it, it feels like a compliment. And, you know, people with eating disorders, they're not trying to, uh, weirdly enough, they're not trying to look amazing, like conventionally by society standards. They just want to, they actually, you know, you quite like looking shocking and looking just stark. Uh, it just feels, I don't know. It, 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 it feels like your, your, it becomes your thing, your whole identity. And that's what I was trying to say in that scene of like, you have to really help people. The way to help people with eating disorders is to not let it become their whole identity, that you only just talk about that, that you, only compliment and comment on their physique because yeah it makes it harder to come out of it really and so what did start to happen it seems is that when people looked at you looked at Ivana they just saw anorexia they just saw the disease and that suited you because in your head Mm -hmm. that was you know a great thing to be doing but it also reduced you and it it reduced you to that in other people's eyes so I I found that very interesting too um you're you're really uh have a great take I think on the way we deal with people who were what you were going through um, and I know there's a lot of well-meaning people out there and a lot of great people in the, in the medical um, space who deal with people and try their best but what what did you think because you went through every sort of therapy in a way I mean there's, mm-hmm. there's a really it's again very harrowing to read you going into all these different consultants waiting rooms and being poked and prodded by various usually men telling you you know to eat and stuff like that but it didn't seem to have any kind of holistic uh, approach to you or even to ask you the simple question of how you were doing mm-hmm. how you were mm-hmm. feeling that was very stark for me reading your book yeah, that that's all I remember. Like, uh, you know, Natasha would say that that's the medical profession. They if they have 
an allopathic model where they only treat the symptoms. I should just remind, I should tell people who Natasha is. We'll come to her in a second. But Natasha is this wonderful woman that treated Ivana um, at, at some point. But we'll get to her in a second. But talk to me more about those people I described as men in the in the medical yeah. space. Yeah, like that, you know, I think partly, you know, eating disorders are misunderstood. But also I was 11 years old, so I was really dismissed as a child and then as a sick child. And... I, I just thought, I, I felt, that's what I felt when I would go to those places. And, you know, I wasn't a very confident, articulate child. I didn't know how to talk to these men, these scary men with all their certificates on the wall and all that stuff, you know. But but I, I still, I had a lot going on. I was a, a, a human with a soul. And I think they didn't treat it like that. They just, I would walk in and they would see Okay, what's your weight? What's this? What are what are you? And and, and that just made me defensive because it was like, you know, people don't realize eating disorders are coping mechanisms. And I would go into these rooms and I would sense they are trying to take away this one thing that is helping me cope with life and this one thing that I like about myself because there wasn't much else I liked, and um and that just made me defensive and protective and snarky. You know, it was that typical. Uh, Teen trying to be outsass the outsass the doctor, and um, I yeah I would give them nothing. I would I would know how to um answer their questions that wouldn't make them worry, you know, or or that would would just keep them out of what was really going on. And yeah, I never felt seen. I never felt that they were taught. I felt that they were kind of looking through me or looking at all the uh, symptoms and and I understand that I understand because it's the easy problem to fix you know weight is the easy problem it's it's like just physics it's just you know add in food and and keep the person on low low activity and they'll gain weight you know but that was never the problem really to begin with so um but yeah, that uh, like I think children can sense that they can sense when people are really really care for them, or when you're just a job. And to me, I was like, I'm just a job here, whereas actually this is my life and my body, so I should really get to say what goes on. Which brings us nicely to Natasha, because you know your mother had tried everything, and I really felt so much for your family reading the book as well as well as for you, obviously, because living with somebody who's doing what you were doing to yourself is so heartbreaking um, for, for siblings and for parents. But uh, she brought you to this woman called Natasha, which uh, was a very different kind of um, therapist than any other ones you'd you'd encountered before. Tell us about her and why that allopathic um, method was something, it almost provided a really safe space for you to be yourself outside of the disorder, I think. Yeah, um, Natasha is amazing. She's just one of the most amazing women I know. And I feel very lucky I met her, you know, because a lot of people don't have this magical encounter with a therapist who really understands them. And I think that changes things for them. I think I'd be a different person without her. Um, but yeah, she was just, you know, I'd been through so many doctors. I was sick of it. I, and I really, and I just felt like, that I've I've got this. I felt like I was fine, you know. I felt like I I could handle everything, and then my mom brought me to her, and she was just warmth immediately. Like she was loud, and she looked beautiful. She was dressed in all these kind of gauzy materials, really like a, a goddess or a fairy, really, and um just brought me in and 
kind of gave me a hug and it, it was so the opposite of what the doctors, you know, this clinical, um, we're not, and, and you know, actually while writing the book that we had doctors review it and they were like, you know, it's not, it's, it would be taboo to have Natasha hug you. A doctor shouldn't. And it was like, oh, but <laughs> I understand that, you know, and it would have been weird to have other doctors hug me, but what she brought was humanity and intuition and she really saw me and I'll never forget that moment so she sent my mother into the other room which was like my mom was like what's going on here because but Natasha you know she was trying to create a sacred space and to build trust between me and her because she knew I would never open up to her if we didn't have that trust and she just sat down on the floor and just looked me in the eye and said how are you doing and it just like cracked me open because I hadn't had anyone for so long just look at me and ask me how I was in there and that's what and I it was like maybe the first moment where I was like I'm not okay this is so hard and and I've been pretending to be okay to everyone because they're all so worried and they're all trying so hard to fix me and and they don't understand so yeah that that was just profound and I just kind of was it to, to have somebody to be able to share with and to be honest with uh, for the first time in a long time was huge. Um, yeah. And you kept seeing her, but of course, it's just not as simple as that. You know, you look, when I'm reading that part of the book, I'm thinking, oh, great. Now Natasha's on the scene. <laughs> it's all fixed. But of course, yeah. you've many more years of struggles ahead of you. Um, you continue to, you know, deteriorate in terms of your health and all of that. And you end up actually in hospital, um, in and out of hospital, I suppose. Uh, can you just take us back to that? Because, I mean, you know, that's when it really, I think, got very, very serious. And for again, for your parents looking at it. And on the one hand, you must have been able to see how much your parents were suffering. But they, this had such a grip on you that that wasn't, you know, even seeing your parents so distressed and spending all this money on all this treatment. It wasn't something that would uh, stop you. But how did you feel the first time you were admitted into hospital and told you couldn't go home, basically? Because I think you were there for five weeks the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like five and a half weeks. Yeah, it was... Um again I was like everyone's overreacting what's going on that's the thing with eating disorders you really do think because it, it, it happens in in kind of secret in the dark you know you'll maybe you'll be doing all this therapy and and you'll be saying and that, that thing was Natasha really was helping she was helping me kind of find reasons to live and find reasons to to be excited about life again that and that was huge but at the same time the uh, medical people kind of had their claws in me and it was all about weight. And I do kind of make that point in the book and I do kind of think the obsession on weight and monitoring it, I don't know if it was... Sometimes I think it set me back a lot because me and Natasha, like I'd go to her and I would just be freaking out about having gained a kilo and and she was kind of like, let's stop dealing with the weight. Let's and But they were too afraid to do that. And I understand, it's very complicated. but yeah, well, by the time I got to hospital, I mean, I just thought everyone was overreacting and I, um, I was tired, but I, I felt it was very frustrating because it was, it was also, you know, it was recovery, recovery, right. You're recovering now. And I'm, I just remember thinking, well, I never decided to recover. I never, I, I didn't agree to this. And it like that, I think that's a big question you have to address with people. Like it is. And Natasha says this about um, treatment places that uh, until you address the root issue, those treatments will just be a rinse and repeat treatment. And I understand, you know, I'm not saying 
ignore the physical stuff because it can be so urgent and there's definitely something to be said for people can get so sick that they don't really have perspective and and I think I've reached that point a few times um but I just I think I the first time in hospital I was just biding my time I was just waiting to get out and and that's the thing you can say to people yes I want to do better and I don't want to keep upsetting my parents but it's in those moments where you're by yourself in private and you just feel so bad about yourself that you kind of make these little decisions of like no no I'm going to keep up this crusade I'm not going to let go of this thing that helps me cope um so so yeah the first day was like not very effective I would say and and then it carried on and like I think I'm not sure if you were in Temple Street I don't you don't mention but a children's hospital anyway and were surrounded by other children who had, who had very different things I suppose as mm-hmm. well um and finally then it gets to the point where you are going to be admitted to um a London clinic um because I had to go outside of Ireland because I suppose there's another thing about us in Ireland not necessarily having all the specialist treatment that is really required for for eating disorders mm-hmm. which is something um that's not very good either but that's that's a very another harrowing part of the book tell me about that day when you were left there because it was quite traumatic I think you say it was the worst day of your life still to this day yeah it's called peaceful pastures the place <laughs> it's not really <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, no you can find it I mean it's not that hard to find but I, d- I just didn't really want to kind of draw attention to it um yeah I mean it was it was it was awful and by the way I should say like you know, this book, I, I do criticize these approaches a lot and I don't have the answer. I don't, you know, I, I, uh, this is just my personal story and I wanted to show people this, the, this is what it feels like for a young person going through it. Um, but you know, I, I, I sort of wish that people who in the medical profession, if they read this book and are kind of, if they're disturbed by some of the accounts, I wish that they would talk to people like Natasha, like she's doing all this research and um, advocating for more funding and more uh, research into treating eating disorders and especially into treating anorexia. So um, yeah, I, I, I fully accept that it's a very complicated issue and it's not, this book isn't just to have a go. It, it's not coming from a place of vengeance. It's, it's to show people I think we can do better. I think we can find different ways of, of treating this. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I went through in that place and so many other young people went through was traumatizing because they, um, they take you away from your parents. Like I was literally kind of pulled off of my mother and, um, then, you know, as an 11 year old in a foreign country, that was terrifying. Like I wasn't able to contact her. There weren't, you were banned from talking to your family. You could talk to them once, twice a week. Um, and yeah, all that. And then of course there was the sort of, uh, force feeding. It's not the, some people get tube fed, but I mean, it's just kind of, you have to eat your food or you'll get all these punishments. So everything that was kind of a comfort, my parents, my home, uh, my eating disorder, they were kind of being ripped away and it just left a lot of pain. And it's, I think that I, I, I just don't think that's very, uh, I don't think it's okay to do that, to leave people who are struggling with just their pain to deal with. I think it's, I think it can do a lot of psychological damage. And um, I think it did to a lot of young people going through those places. Yeah. I mean, it's a big part of the book, your, your your time there. It was like three months, I think. And you, uh, you know, you describe all the other people who were there and 
a lot of close-knit friendships that you made and also some very destructive behaviors that were going on a lot of self-harming which you didn't actually succumb to because th- the thread through the book I think is that somewhere in your head and in your heart and in your soul there was some sort of idea of a life that you could be living in the future and you say that why you didn't get involved with the self-harm that went on in that place was because you sort of could see yourself dancing or acting or performing in some way with unblemished wrists you know mm-hmm. it's kind of um it was it was a beautiful thread I think to me that that somehow there was always that even if it was very very faint there was something else and I think that that was um epitomized in a way by when you I think it's 2004 when you start writing to JK Rowling like you were a, a massive Harry Potter fan I mean I can't um you you detail it very well. This is not someone with a kind of casual interest in in the <laughs> books. This is an encyclopedic knowledge. It's someone who goes down the rabbit hole to such an extent because you are kind of a perfectionist and or you, you, you talk about that in everything you do and you went for it and the book spoke to you so much. Tell me about that um, sort of pen pal relationship with J.K. Rowling because it's kind of incredible. You must have been amazed when you got mm. the first letter back. Yeah, of course I was. It was like the chances, I suppose, of her getting that letter and then her just whatever having time that day to say, you know what, I'll reply to this little girl. Um, yeah, it was incredible, it's like a kind of magic. And um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it. She wrote these very lovely, you know, open handwritten letters, kind of just giving advice and, and sympathizing. That was the thing. It wasn't just all. I here's all my wise words. It was just a very human connection that she said she understood. But then we'd spend the other half of the letter talking about Harry Potter. Like I'd be sharing my theories and all that kind of thing, like just nerdy stuff. And she she's a nerd herself. So she appreciated the uh, devotion to her work. Um, And then but but like that's the thing. I think people the media story kind of it did get truncated to, oh, she wrote you letters and she offered you a part and and then it fixed it. And like that's what I wanted to put in the book that it, it did help. It absolutely helped to have somebody who I loved and admired and who was pursuing her dreams and, you know, such a brave, creative woman doing living her life to to have her talk to me and to feel like oh maybe I could have that path maybe that I if I had if I kind of took initiative that I could have a very different life but at the same time like I still had an eating disorder and like the the JK Rowling letters you know they'd come every couple weeks but in the two weeks in between then I decide you know what screw this no what I'm not going to recover and 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 then I would lie to J.K. Rowling like that's a, because you lie to everyone you when you've got these problems. Like I would say to her, yeah, all good on the road to recovery. And then it's like, oh, no, I'm back in another hospital. So and that was embarrassing because it was like, oh, wow, you know, like the person I look up to the most in the world. I can't even do this for her. And she must just think I have no respect for her. But it, it's it's sort of out of your control. Um, So I wanted to show that, like, it helped, you know, it was uh, um yeah, as you say, it, it there there was this thread of vibrant, creative women in my life who inspired me, but I, I still hadn't made the choice to kind of pursue that path myself. And and nobody can make that for you, really. Yeah, I think you say it very well. There's so many, there's such beautiful writing here, but you do say nobody can take away the pain that caused you to reach for the disorder in the first place. Not even J.K. Rowling, who you absolutely admired. And I think it's really good that you've totally knocked that one on the head. That is if she swooped in um, with her magical ways and kind of fixed you. It's so clear from this book that that's not what happened. And yet it was a source of joy 
and comfort for you th- as you moved through this terrible time in your life. Um, you got out of peaceful pastures. We'll still call it, we'll call it that anyway. Uh, eventually, um, you you had you were on the road to recovery, and I, I you know I think it's really amazing and a testament to your mum, Marguerite, again that when you came back and there was this kind of aftercare that went on when you were back in Ireland and you were supposed to be ringing them up every week saying about what your weight was, that your mum realised that that wasn't helping and she knocked on on the head and she's, she's as you say, like as I, I've met her myself, she's kind of not the most, you know, <laughs> talkative, loud person, but she found the strength to tell the people in England, look, you know what, we're going to deal with it from now on. And they thought that uh, they were being, manip- she was being manipulated by an anorexic, but in fact, mm. she had really, understood that was the best way to go forward so I, and I think your mom comes out very well in this I, I mean f- from how she really listens to you I think yeah absolutely my both my parents I, I, I really credit like you know true recovery to having them as my parents and obviously my own work too but um, I saw a lot of girls who who had been through that peaceful pasture system their parents fully subscribed to the program and it, it kind of it's this war it creates this war between parents and child and children where uh it, 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 you know well the anorexia will always be smarter it will always be more conniving and more sly it'll find a way you can't you can't unless you are actually in a clinic and you're sitting them then and you're monitoring everything they do um i just saw so many girls not break free from the the pattern of relapsing and and treatment and that because their parents took kept such a tight hold on it, kept such a tight focus. You know, things like you're supposed to be filling out food diaries, but then you're also supposed to be a normal teenager. And like to be going out with friends to the movies and then be like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to fill in my food diary. You, you, if It's like you can never really let it go and build a new identity outside of anorexia. But at the same time in your head, you're like, well, I'm failing at anorexia. So I can't, I can't do both. And my mom and dad like really gave me the freedom to, or they, they gave me the trust to be like, you know, they watched me, of course, they were aware of it. My mom did, but they let me, um, yeah, let go of the obsession with weight. And she actually, my mom, you know, in, in writing the book and talking to her about it, she said that, um, the, you know, the health board in Ireland who had been looking after me, she was like, you know, I think they'd learned something from the first time because they didn't, they also took the focus off the weight then and didn't weigh me every week. And yeah, that was the thing, you know, like, cause your, your body, changes you're never going to keep your weight in the same place and uh, and 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 not having to check that every single week made me gave me the space to kind of let go of that obsession with numbers the new safe ireland survivor fund in partnership with airbnb enables safe ireland to contribute to sustainable supports for women and frontline services and to provide Focused Actions for Children. You can play a critical role in helping to protect more women and children from abuse. Donate directly to your local domestic violence service or to the national work of Safe Ireland. Go to www.safeireland.ie for more information. 
Well, listen, let's talk a little bit about Luna Lovegood. Um, and also your dad comes out of this very well, too. I love <laughs> when you went over for the adventure of the audition. He was just so, so into it. Like, I was really feeling his enthusiasm. He loves all that stuff. But yeah. the thing is, about her as a character, um, when you read the books, as soon as you you sort of saw her, she spoke to you. She resonated yeah. with you. Tell us a little bit about that. And then tell us about that day when you realised that you might there might be a possibility for you to kind of at least try out for it anyway. Yeah. Well, like she really spoke to me. There was something in her, uh, as, as one of my spiritual teachers says, it's in the book. If you spot it, if you spot it, you've got it. And I really, I, I think that's so true that th- there was something in Luna that really called to me, just her, um, beautiful, you know, outlook on the world, her curiosity about life, her creativity. And at the time I was so not, you know, embracing those parts of myself. I was, really more like Gollum. <laughs> That's what in the book, I was just miserable and, and quite, I was, I was toxic. I had a very toxic mindset and, um, and it, her presence really disturbed me because it made me be like, Oh, maybe I could be that. That looks, I, that I, I would, I like her. There's something, I like her presence. I'd like to. And so that it was a hint to who I wanted to be. And then, um, yeah, like over the years, I suppose, embracing more of those parts of myself. And, and then, yeah, one day on, so I would go on all the fan sites every day. And one day on MuggleNet saw this open casting notice. And I just, I really just felt like, and I wasn't, I didn't have much confidence. I wasn't arrogant in any way, but I really had this belief that if I can just get in front of those casting directors, I think I can show them who I know Luna to be. Yeah. yeah. So your dad brought you over, you were 14. I mean, you went, you queued up outside this parish hall or wherever it was in England. I mean, you were in London. As I say, it was this great adventure. There was, there was hundreds of girls there, wasn't there? I mean, you were standing in the, in the line looking around at all these Luna, potential Luna love goods. You go through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like you'd said to JK Rowling in the past in the letters that you know you'd love to play her, but there was no link with that. I mean, you had to go to this casting. Mm-hmm. There was no, she wasn't telling people to cast you. You turned up like everyone else. And incredibly, um, you got the part. But what I think is so interesting, and you don't spend actually that much of the book talking about your Harry Potter experience. It really is much more about all of the struggles that we've talked about, which I think is kind of admirable because you probably could have written a whole other book just about the whole Harry Potter, Potter years. But um, you were this incredible fan and that made it quite uh, difficult, I think, for you being on the set. You knew everything about all those characters, Daniel Radcliffe, about Emma, about all the people in the thing. And that was just, I, f- I find that really funny reading it, I have to say. <laughs> there you were with this dream come true, but you couldn't really relate to these people in a normal way. No, I couldn't. Well, because I like in some ways I'd replaced the eating disorder with an obsession with, you know, I'd intensified that because I think after recovery, I just didn't want to deal with myself. I still didn't like myself. So I was like, okay, but that thing, right, we're letting that go. I can't deal with that. I don't like myself, but I I like these people. So I'll just focus on them. And I like these books and I kind of did disappear into them. And I think a lot of fans, it is that, it, that this obsession with other people comes from a, a sense of inferiority, this, this not wanting to address their own problems. Uh, not all of them, but a lot, a lot of young people, especially. But then, of course, I had that strange experience of having the having it flipped like you don't generally confront these people that you're obsessed with um and I think I realized you know when because they were so nice to me they were so kind and friendly and welcoming and I and they would just ask me what I was into how like what I was up and I just was like damn I've I've 
replaced my personality with theirs. So I don't know what to say to them. I didn't know how to talk to them. And I was also just like in these habits of stalking them on the internet. I'd still go home and do that. And it was just, it was very bizarre behavior. But um, yeah, again, it was trying to avoid dealing with myself and my own problems. Because you were still, I mean, very much, and I suppose maybe to an extent your whole life you are, you were still in recovery. You were still coming to terms mm-hmm. with the loss of something that, as we said earlier, was protecting you. You were yeah. you were out in the world in your own right now. And that was something that was very difficult to navigate. And suddenly you're cast into the spotlight. I hadn't actually realised that you were sort of outed as someone who had had an eating disorder, except when I read your book. Because, you know, it wasn't something that was being widely discussed publicly at all. And then what happened? Somebody from Peaceful Pastures told? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And it wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't named because they couldn't because of confidentiality. But somebody wrote a letter to the paper saying Warner Brothers are employing an anorexic. This is setting a bad precedent for young people. All this stuff. Um, And it was... Because we'd said to them, we'd said, like, my parents had said, oh, you know, she had these issues, but it's kind of all taken care of, all good. You know, we didn't want to alarm them. But then this person made it seem like a much bigger problem. And it's like I had two years of recovery behind me, like physically, I'd kind of stayed stable. I was I was OK. Um, but this person just seemed to think, uh, you know, anyone with these kind of problems, they should not be in the public eye. They do not get. And I really you know that's partly why i put that story in the book because i really disagree with that i think you have to help people with um with mental health issues to reintegrate into society to give them a purpose like to help them take their mind off of it and find something much bigger than their problems um and it did though, though you know having work and having people believe in me that really helped me heal but yeah it it, it came out that way and it, it then put the focus back on i had to have weekly therapy and I had to be weighed and that was its own thing that was embarrassing because you know after after work sometimes the others would be going to dinner and i i'd be like i have to go to this place and it was just so it was awkward, um, but it didn't get outed in the press. Warner Brothers and uh, the publicists, they were all so helpful of like helping me just, uh, and, and as I say, for confidentiality reasons, that person couldn't say my name. So it was it was kept quiet for a few years until then, I think around 16, I decided to start speaking about it. Yeah, because you felt it was a good thing to do then. But yeah, you were outed in terms of your workplace, I suppose, which was mm-hmm. not a nice thing to, to happen. Um, but again, they did seem to have dealt with it quite humanely to a degree as much as they could um what about then uh did you <laughs> it's it, there's another really funny bit in the book where there's, there's all this trolling on, on in the internet because these fans like you were are obsessed and they <laughs> some of them weren't happy with your the casting of you as luna lovegood and <laughs> you actually joined in on the trolling at one point yeah i did for a while um again it was just like I think negativity for me has always been my safe place that like if I'm the meanest person to me, nobody can really touch me. And there was a sense of like taking back like those comments, you see them and they do hurt. It's like your own thoughts echoed outside of your mind. You're like, oh, no, they must be true then. And um, I think kind of getting online, typing out these mean things, it made me be it made me feel like. Okay, well, maybe all these other trolls are just sad, insecure little people as well. (laughs) You know, maybe it's not, maybe they're not these all powerful voices that they seem to be when, when they don't have faces behind them. Um, but, but yeah, it it was an addiction. Like, I think, uh, like, that's, that's always been my problem that I've always thought if I can understand all the meanness, if I can read the meanest thing, then I'll be okay. And I can, I can convince 
I don't know, like, yeah, control this thing of not being hurt by it, not being surprised. But I actually just, you know, that's what I found. And it's in the book that you just sink lower and lower. It gets meaner and meaner. And, and then your thoughts become mean about other people. They, and then it's impossible to create anything because you're all you hear are the cruel thoughts and you really believe them. And you have to be an optimist. You have to be like, you have to have a bright view on the world to, to, to create something. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I was addicted to it, but I eventually pulled myself away because it was just like, I saw them saying mean things about my co-stars as well and the people making the films. And then I would go to work and be like, these people work so hard. They care so much. And I love that. And I want to be part of this community. I want to be one of the creators rather than the people who sit at home and complain about everything. At what point did you get to a point where you could relate to all the people on the set and where you could drop all of that, um, I suppose, obsession and, and, and stop that being a barrier between creating proper relationships? How, how far in were you when you could enjoy it for, for what it was properly? Yeah. So after the fifth movie, which was my first movie, I kind of went home that summer and it all went quiet because I hadn't really made friends. I'd kept them all at arm's length. And I remember feeling really sad, like, you know, oh, I'm living the dream, but I, I don't feel like I am. I'm sort of sapping all the joy out of it because I keep questioning, do I belong here? And what am I, do I have any worth? Um, so I sort of made a decision over that summer, you know, right, I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm going to drop this act of, of, you know, I'm going to stop hiding behind the, the character, behind Luna and try and just be friends with people. And yeah, so I really did. And, and that's also when I discovered dance. Uh, like uh, things I start to sort of broaden myself I start to work on my self-development and that really helped me to not be so obsessed with them and to yeah to 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 feel just step into this sense of okay I belong here I have I have a reason to be here and I'm going to contribute yeah so tell me about that experience just about being in, in those films and you know living the dream because eventually you did feel like you were living the dream you you were more centered in yourself what was it like god what, a, what an incredible opportunity <laughs> Oh yeah, it was amazing. I know. And like, I don't, um, I, I still, I look back now and sometimes I think, you know, all teenagers are too insecure and too self-conscious to enjoy their youth, really, that period. And I think I'd be much better equipped to enjoy it now, unfortunately. Um, but, but yeah, it was, I mean, every day was different and, um, it was so creative and it was, we had, like, I didn't realize, you know, since doing other films since what a luxury we had with the time, the, uh, how every moment was like very carefully crafted, you know, David Yates would create this very safe space for the actors to get together and delicately craft the moments. And on other things, it's just rush, rush, rush. You're kind of on your own as an actor in many ways. Um, and it was, yeah, it was lovely. Like it was, it was just something I didn't think was going away. And, and every day there'd be a new actor. Be It's just like unpredictable and, and very creative and, and so much fun. And then tell me about your relationship with J.K. Rowling, because presumably that got more, you know, you, your bond developed when, when you were cast. Was she absolutely delighted? Um, yeah, like we continued writing to each other throughout the film years and, and we talk about everything, you know, talk about fame and talk about the films and, and she was still writing the books. And yeah, then continued to write to her after you know less more more sporadically but it's always been letters with her and um I haven't spoken to her written to her for a while I've I've done her she does her events for Lumos the charity so I, I work with them quite a lot but um yeah I haven't I've sent her the book I don't know that's all I'm kind of a bit terrified <laughs> of that of what she'll think 
Yeah. Well, I'm sure she'll love it. It's, it's incredible. So tell me about coming out of, of the Harry Potter franchise into the world again, because another massive transition, I would imagine, because you really it is your world. There's there's a whole family atmosphere. You have your you know friends and security and bondings that you've made. And then you're kind of thrust out again. Was that a difficult time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I found that really challenging because I wasn't expecting because it was both school ending and Harry Potter ending. And um, I wasn't, you know, I, I sometimes wish I'd gone to acting school. Like people talked to me out of it. I was thinking about it, but people said, no, you've, you're already in the industry. So just keep working. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't, I wasn't trained. I knew how to do Luna and Harry Potter because I that was my passion. But like acting is a craft and I don't think I fully respected it for that. So I went to LA and I kind of just tried my hand at it. And yeah, it, it was like, I suppose I realized there, there are a lot of things that are not the quality of writing as Harry Potter. Like we were very protected in that way in that you kind of couldn't do a bad performance on those films because there were so many people involved. And um, yeah, like I'm grateful for those years in LA because I really, I learned how to be more assertive in my career, to not be passive. And and I, I did do a lot of training. I, I studied like Meisner and a few other, um, under a few other acting teachers. And that was great. But but I think there was this sense of, because there had been that story in the press that, oh, you recovered and you got into films and now you have this fabulous life, that I think I felt this pressure of, well, I have to keep getting roles. I have to keep being successful or else I won't have any place in society. And and yeah, that I think while I was in LA, I really realized that the whole mainstream success thing maybe wasn't really me like I did play the weird girl in those films I know they were their big mainstream project but I I do like weirder things I have weirder tastes and when I was in LA I started to get um jobs back in the UK and Ireland which were more experimental more interesting and I really realized I I'm, I don't want to chase the big success thing that's not my dream I think that's a dream that's forced on people and like you know people would say to me oh why don't we see you in any more blockbusters and it's it took me a long time to realize I don't really want that you know um so yeah it, it was a few years of really finding myself after that but that then and I live in London now and I feel really kind of much more centered here yeah what did you I mean I know you're passionate about veganism now you have a podcast and um what else did you did you get that from LA like I mean the sort of the, we have this we have this I think when we spoke before it's this image of people in LA just only drinking green juices and doing yoga 24 7 and veganism and all of that kind of thing but I presume you did pick up some things from there about lifestyle and, and, and choices yeah but I know you're a big animal lover so obviously that's your main thing around the veganism they are very healthy no you're right they're like I remember you know people scandalized when you when you let your nails grow out and you don't have manicures you know it's just self-care it kind of goes to the extreme it's it, yeah it's fine that's just human isn't it but it goes to the extreme like you kind of think you have to have every part of yourself has to be because it's about like people are trying to sell themselves as products really because they're all in the acting industry um so yeah that that it got a bit much there um but but that that's where I discovered veganism I mean I already was vegetarian I was already very interested in animal rights um but that's where I started to see that oh you can do it in a really healthy lovely way or a delicious way I think before I I thought eating like veganism was too connected to eating disorders (laughs) that it was just about eating salads and all that um, so it opened my eyes to that. But for me, it is really about the animal rights, the ethics. Yeah. 
Um, and I just want to, before we, you go, I just wanted to ask you about, um, I suppose, what would you like people to know from this book about maybe other approaches to eating disorders and how you can maybe centre the person a bit more? What, what, what would you love people to get from it? Oh, that's a big question. Well, I mean, for one, I, I, I would love if people would reach out to more doctors, doctors in the medical field would reach out to more people like Natasha, um, who works in Ireland, you know, and that is her name. Her name's in the book. Um, just to develop, uh, treatments where, this, you know, the, the, the emotional stuff is taken care of. This, the soul is taken care of too, as well as the body. And, um, what would I like people to take from the book? Hmm. J- just, uh, like there, there's a, there's a, sounds very simplistic, but there's a person there and, and that's who you have to treat. You have to, like, nobody's ever going to recover for the sake of it because they have something that makes them feel good or makes them feel numb. So you have to kind of anchor their life, their their soul to something for some reason to live. You have to help them find the reason to live. And that's, of course, very arbitrary and not something you can kind of put a neat timeline on. But until somebody, you know, for me, until it was like, I realized, oh, I want to act, I want to dance, I want to tell stories, and I think I actually can, until I really start to believe that and invest in those things, I had no reason to recover, you know? Um, so, so th- yeah, th- I haven't explained it very well. Hopefully the book explains it better. But yeah, I hope I hope people will read this book and just realize you have to do the deep inner work as well. And last thing, that you have to collaborate with the person. You can't just force these treatments on them and expect them to get better you have to recognize that this is a coping mechanism that they found for a reason and you have to help them find other ways and to make they have to make that decision i would like to get better i want to recover and i'm going to commit to this so so you have to collaborate with them in in their treatment i would say and the very last thing i just want to ask is how you are now uh, i think that question's really important how are you and um, i suppose the, the, there's a lovely bit at the end of the book where you discover circus skills and circus training um it's really wonderful to see how strong it makes you feel in your body and how how ma- it makes you have this other relationship with your body and also how much joy it brings as someone who was a dancer really at heart at the end of the day um tell me about that about kind of your more recent times and what you're up to yeah movement is a huge part of like my mental health and happiness and because I think it's um there's a there's a teacher I love uh, or a writer her name's Lisa Lister she writes all about like menstrual health and um body stuff and she talks about so she's a witch she uh, fully identifies as a witch and she says uh you know women have been dismembered from our bodies in ancient times and and now like you know I would say that the treatment that I went through through really disconnected me from my body and she's she talks about how we have to remember ourselves we have to come back into our bodies and and stop being afraid of them and and actually you know Glennon Doyle is another person who talks about this she says women have been scared out of our bodies men have been scared out of our feelings So, so that's our work I think as women to to remember come back into reality, not be afraid of them, to learn to work with them. And uh, and for years I did go around as if I was just a head, a disembodied head and ignored my body. And and now, and dance has helped me 
and circus. Circus especially. It's an amazing community. If anyone's listening is tempted to try it, just do it. I started when I was 28. I'm 30 now. And like in two years, I've really, you, you kind of think, oh, I'll never be good at this. It's for professionals. But your body is amazing for how it can adapt and how it can learn things. And that like, I do struggle with the whole body love thing and acceptance. It's, it's a volatile relationship at times. But but with um, doing things that require mind-body connection, that helps me like feel at one and feel feel grateful for my body, feel appreciation. And that's really helped me with, um, yeah, my mental health. And more writing, I hope, because you've got such a talent, Ivana. Like, I, I have to make sure I impress on people how great this book is and how beautifully written it is and how clever it is. <laughs> I also love at the beginning that you, you you sort of tell everyone you're a bit angry in a lot of it. You're you're mean in some parts of it and you're not, you know, you don't shy away from that part of yourself either. That rage and anger and, you know, is, is very much through the book. Yeah, it had to be. I mean, the anger had to be that that was one thing I had to communicate to people that we can't talk about self-love and eating disorders without talking about self-hate because these things literally kill people. They 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 have they have that power to really destroy people. So, yeah, it is a mean and angry book at times, but hopefully more hopeful. And yes, I definitely want to write more. You know, I, I feel like. I had to get this story out. I'm quite sick of talking about eating disorders. I just want to move on and talk and write fairy tales. Um, <laughs> so that's my plan now. Yeah, now it's done. And acting as well? Yeah, yeah, I'll always act, definitely. Um, I think I'll probably be more selective about parts because I want to keep time for writing. But acting's a lot more fun than writing, I have to say. It's a lot more sociable and fun. So yeah, I'll always do both. Brilliant. Well, I, as I said, I just want to recommend the book to everyone. I think you've done a real service for people, anybody touched by this. But, you know, I don't just think for people touched by anorexia. I think anyone dealing with any trauma in their body or any addiction issues of all kinds, because it's such a huge spectrum. I certainly just reading it found there was a lot in it for me and I'm 50 years old. So, you know, good bit beyond you. But I definitely... I found a lot of it quite moving and some of it comforting and helpful as well. So I just wanted to say thank you for writing it. I think I think that's what it's going to have for a lot of people. But also you've got the great crack and story about Harry Potter too. which So it's got everything really. Oh, thanks, Roisin. Ivana, thanks for coming on and talking to us. And maybe uh, we can come back and do something else again on circus because I think what you've just, <laughs> what you've, what you've just said there about the body I think is something we don't talk about enough. And, yeah. and it would be great maybe to have a discussion again about remembering and how we go about doing that and why it's important and I think Glennon Doyle that untamed book has uh, resonated with a lot of people um, particularly recently so thank you so much Ivana and lovely to have you back on again thanks a lot oh thank you Roshi thank you for such a lovely conversation and yeah likewise so great chatting to you that's all we have time for that was Ivana Lynch and her brilliant book is called The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting I really recommend it it's an engrossing read the podcast is produced by me Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time